0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Raising the Bar in Hormone Receptor Positive HER2 Negative Early Breast Cancer Multidisciplinary Strategies for Integrating the CDK4 and 6 Inhibitors. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash HYM860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also
1: available. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Raising the Bar in HR-Positive HER2-Negative Early Breast Cancer, multidisciplinary strategies for integrating the CDK4-6 inhibitors into the care of early breast cancer. We're very pleased to be here with the global audience to discuss new data in HR-Positive HER2-Negative Early Breast Cancer that's critically important for our practice. I'm Joyce O'Shaughnessy from Baylor University Medical Center, Texas Oncology and U.S. Oncology, And I'm joined by Dr. Judy Bowie, who is chair of breast and melanoma surgical oncology, professor of surgery at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And I'm also joined by Professor Stephen Johnston, professor of breast cancer medicine at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. Welcome, Judy and Stephen. Well, why are we here discussing this topic today? 30% of patients are gonna be diagnosed with HR-positive, HER2-negative early breast cancer, and are at very high risk for recurrence based on clinical and pathologic features. And we have very important new trial results from the MONARCH-E trial that are practice-changing. We have a new FDA approval for adjuvant abemacyclib that includes a requirement for key 67 testing. And we also have the issue that de-escalation of axillary surgery which is increasingly the standard of care, may impact adjuvant therapy options. So, Stephen, what do you think the most important reason we should be talking about this today is?
2: Well, I think what we face is that for a certain group of ER ER-positive breast cancer patients, despite everything we give them, including chemotherapy and the most appropriate hormone treatment, we know that there's a group that will still develop early recurrences with a degree of endocrine resistance and trying to understand and overcome that and apply a new treatment has been the goal for the last 10 or 20 years. Now we have new data that really show we have a new option. So I think it's high time we've had something new for these very high risk patients. Thanks. How
1: about you, Judy?
3: Well, I think from the surgical standpoint, um, as with many of the developments with breast cancer, it's always very important that all of the disciplines are aware of what's changing in the other fields. And here we have um, a new indication for a drug that can improve patients' outcomes, um, but that is very much dependent on identifying nodal positivity and number of positive nodes. And so I think that interaction between surgical oncologists and medical oncologists is gonna be critical to ensure that we can provide the right drugs to the right patients.
1: Thanks so much. I think it's a super important topic we're going to talk about here today. So we're going to talk about how can we harness CDK4-6 inhibition as a component of multimodal therapy to improve outcomes for patients with HR-positive, HER2-negative, early breast cancer. And Stephen and I will give some background information, and then the three of us will discuss some cases that I hope will illustrate how we apply these new data to patients in our practice. So I'm going to start off with just a brief background of How do we understand high-risk HR-positive HER2-negative early breast cancer? Well, one thing that's very clear that we can see here on this timeline, as we're looking at the hazard rate of recurrence in the first 10 years here, that there is a group of patients that are at very high risk for recurrence within the first two to three years of their diagnosis of breast cancer. And this peak of recurrence that we see for stage one, two, three breast cancer really represents primary endocrine therapy refractory breast cancer. And this is a group that we have not had good tools for in terms of improving their outcome. And you can see in the colored bars down at the bottom, this is the window that the adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitor trials have attempted to bracket to decrease this risk of recurrence in the primary endocrine therapy refractory population. But how can we identify, how can we know that we might have one of these patients up front who could really benefit from abemaciclib? Well, we can look at standard clinical pathologic features, prognostic predictive gene expression profiles, adaptive phenotypic response to endocrine therapy, and spe- specific molecular alterations. And one of the things we've seen and beautifully illustrated in the soft And text trials with central ascertainment of these very important biomarkers here in premenopausal HR positive HER2 negative patients. That we know standard clinical pathologic features such as younger age, number of lymph nodes positive, and you see the four or more lymph nodes, how quickly those patients recur. They're at risk early on for recurrence, tumor size over two centimeters, and also in the bottom right. We see that a weaker expression of the estrogen receptor really is a high risk feature for early uh, recurrence. We also see that lower PGR expression increases risk of recurrence, higher grade. And then, bottom left, we see sort of a continuous variable, a stair step of increasing key 67, definitely increasing the risk for early recurrence of breast cancer. Of course, we're well used to using the 21 gene recurrence score. We see in the middle, panel that those patients with a high risk recurrence score have a very high risk of early recurrence. These are primary endocrine therapy refractory patients. We also know in looking at the 21 gene recurrence score and what what determines that high recurrence score, it actually over on the right is really mostly dependent on expression of the estrogen receptor, also on higher proliferation, but the lower the estrogen receptor expression, the higher the risk of recurrence. Again, primary endocrine therapy, refractoriness. We know from the ADAPT trial here in node-positive patients, four or more node-positive patients, that the higher 21-gene recurrence score, again, leads to this high risk of early recurrence from breast cancer. Interestingly, we've seen from the Penelope B trial where patients received preoperative chemotherapy and had residual disease, that Patients that have HR-positive, HER2-negative breast cancer, it's a mixture of intrinsic subtyping. And you can see in the panel that the red curve, the blue curve, and the purple curve are luminal B, HER2-enriched, and basal-like in this HR-positive, HER2-negative population. And we have a heterogeneity of biology, and these patients have a very high risk for early recurrence. We're not doing intrinsic subtyping as a standard of care, in our practice, but this may come uh, over time. And then if we utilize the uh, 80 gene blueprint signature that also looks at intrinsic subtyping, we can see that 13% of HR positive HER2 negative breast cancer patients are reclassified as basal by the 80 gene signature. And we see that when those patients receive preoperative chemotherapy, 34% 34% of them have a pathologic complete response compared to only 5.6% of patients who have luminal B breast cancer. So it's very interesting to think that within our HR-positive HER2-negative population, there's a group of patients that have basal like breast cancer, and they're exquisitely sensitive to chemotherapy. And we're also well aware of the 70 gene signature as a biomarker of response and also prognosis in breast cancer. And the green arrow shows the low-risk 70 gene, and the red arrow in the center shows the high-risk 70 gene. But the high-risk now has been bifurcated into ultra-high risk, the top 50%, and into just low-risk. And they're distinguished by higher expression of proliferation and DNA repair pathway genes. And when this is uh, added onto analysis of the iSpy2 trial where patients received the standard preoperative weekly paclitaxel followed by AC then surgery versus adding on the PARP inhibitor Olaprib plus the PD-1 inhibitor Dervalumab, the checkpoint inhibitor followed by AC, followed by surgery. We see very interestingly that on the left in the 70 gene signature high-risk group, but the lower end of the high-risk, the MP1, we see no improvement in PAF-CR, very low, around 10%, no improvement with uh, the addition of Dervalumab and Olaparib. But in the high 2 population, we do see uh, an improvement in the PAF-CR rate from about 22% up to 60. percent percent. These are very similar, that is, we would see with triple negative breast cancer. So within the HR positive HER2 negative population is a group of patients that are exquisitely sensitive to DNA repair agents, as well as to checkpoint inhibitors and have a very aggressive biology uh, that also is primary endocrine therapy refractory. And then lastly, we can actually utilize a phenotypic adaptive approach And utilize two to three weeks of preoperative endocrine therapy. Then the patients go to surgery and their key 67 is looked at, as well as nodal status, tumor size to ascertain the PEPI score. And in patients who have the higher PEPI scores, and that's basically not uh, suppressing that key 67 down to less than 10%, we can see in the purple curves here on the bottom a very high risk for early recurrence, primary endocrine therapy refractoriness. And this is a huge unmet need that we we really need to address to improve the outcome of patients. And then lastly, we do know that there's a lot of work going on to help us from a next generation sequencing standpoint, identify a priori those patients that have a very high risk of recurrence with our standard therapies. This is a, a, a connectivity map of the luminal breast cancers, and we're beginning to find out which of these molecular alterations increase risk, such as P53 uh, mutations, FGFR amplification, um, et cetera. So in summary, endocrine therapy resistance is the key feature of these high-risk HR-positive HER2-negative early breast cancer patients that recur within five years. And tumor size, nodal status, and grade impact recurrence risk and improve prognostic accuracy of the gene expression signatures. High proliferation and lower ER increase that risk of recurrence. Luminal B, HER2-enriched and basal-like breast cancers are high-risk, HR-positive, HER2-negative breast cancers, and failure of preoperative endocrine therapy to suppress K67 predicts for poor outcome with adjuvant endocrine therapy. And then there are multiple genomic alterations in high-risk, HR-positive, HER2-negative early breast cancer that converge to influence DNA repair, proliferation, apoptosis, and immunogenicity, and to impact our patients' outcomes. And so that gives us a background then of which are these patients that are at higher risk for that early recurrence that we really need to address with new therapies. And I do want to point out that if you will be able to download and use additional resources, there's a very nice practice aid focused on key 67 testing and risk assessment that I think will be helpful to you in your in your practice. And with that, now it's my pleasure to turn us over to Professor Stephen Johnson, who's going to talk to us about evaluating the current and the new data that we have that we want to apply to our practice.
2: So thank you very much, Joyce, for that introduction. And I'm very happy to talk really about the level of risk uh, that we have here and really the implications of new data that we've got from a, a large trial called Monarch e trying to improve the outcome for these patients with uh, increased risk. As this particular slide shows here, patients who have hormone-positive breast cancer, the last big development was the introduction of aromatase inhibitors nearly 20 years ago, and it showed a small incremental gain over tamoxifen, which had been the previous standard of care. But as pointed out in that first two to three years, patients are still relapsing despite aromatase inhibitors with primary endocrine resistance and understanding who those patients are and what better options we have for them has been the goal of research over recent years. Now CDK inhibitors have been uh, evaluated in advanced breast cancer. and We have three agents, palbociclib, ribocyclib and abemaciclib, as shown on this slide here. And palbociclib and ribocyclib are very similar drugs. Which are potent inhibitors, but abemocyclib is a different drug. It has a slightly higher affinity for CDK4 and a broader kinome inhibition spectrum and is given as a continually dosed drug with GI side effects, the main rate limiting factor, whereas parbocyclib and ribocyclib are given three weeks on, one week off because of hematological side effects. Now, as we can see here in advanced disease, these drugs have transformed the outcome when combined to aromatase inhibitors in these trials, Paloma 2, Mona Lisa 2, and Monarch 3, where they are now the standard of care if patients relapse with hormone-positive metastatic breast cancer because compared to aromatase inhibitors alone, they have substantially improved progression-free survival. And we've now seen some early data with Mona Lisa 2 that it also impacts on overall survival. So the question is really, do these have a role in the adjuvant setting in curing more patients? Now, when we're evaluating therapies in early breast cancer, the traditional order of looking at drugs has been to consider them after surgery in an adjuvant setting where we're essentially giving the drugs blind. We have to do large trials comparing the addition of a drug to no addition of the drug and follow patients for a number of years. There is an alternative measure of using neoadjuvant therapy, which we use to downstage tumors, sometimes allowing us to uh, convert a mastectomy to breast conserving surgery. But we also have the opportunity to study drugs over a shorter term exposure and see how it manifests and changes the biology of the disease. And we have an opportunity to measure something called proliferation measured by the KEY67, which is an immunohistochemical test of cells in the cell cycle. And this is a model we've used for a number of years to evaluate the impact of, for example, letrozole after a short term exposure of two weeks, where you can see in the bottom graph that Q67 for the majority of patients will fall and then remain suppressed over a period of a few months before surgery. But there are a group of patients where the Q67 may not fall and remain elevated. And this could be the hallmarks of those primary endocrine resistant tumors that are gonna relapse early. So we've integrated proliferation and KC7 in particular as a measure of endocrine responsiveness and resistance in a number of studies. And we'll talk about that today. Now, in terms of the neoadjuvant setting to set the scene before we look at the MONAC-E trial, there are a number of trials that have looked at adding these agents to aromatase inhibitors in a short-term exposure before surgery. The neo monic study looked at this with the addition of a abemacyclib to anastrazole compared to either astrozole alone or a bemacyclib. And the primary endpoint was the change in ki 67 at the two-week point. And then all patients were treated with the combination through to surgery at around 14 weeks. In terms of clinical radiological response, it was around about 46% with the combination. And pathological CR, which we're used to talking about in triple negative breast cancer or in HER2 positive breast cancer, was really relatively low in endocrine therapy, even with this combination, at only 4%, and we'll come back to that. But if you measured what happened to proliferation when you added in abemaciclib to an astrazole or even used abemaciclib on its own, you see much greater drop in key 67, as you can see in these individual waterfall plots. And when you look at cell cycle arrest, that tells you how many patients' tumors went into a complete cell cycle arrest, you can see that that improves in two weeks from 15% with an endocrine therapy to over 60%, when a CDK inhibitor is added. Now, another trial that we're involved with was the Pallet trial, which we did in conjunction with the NSABP. And this looked at a different CDK inhibitor, Pallocyclib in combination with letrozole, again, with a change over two weeks. But this trial had the option of electrozole alone as a control arm through to surgery, which provided a reference and a control for what happened at the 14 week time point. In our particular trial, we were interested in the change in key 67 through to 14 weeks, as well as the clinical response data. And what you can see here in these individual plots is that when letrozole alone is used, there were a significant number who dropped the key 67, but not all of them. And as soon as you added the CDK inhibitor, far more patients had complete suppression of their key 67 by the time of surgery. And here, when looking at cell cycle arrest at the 14 week point, as opposed to the two week point, you can see that with endocrine therapy alone, it had improved for, to around about 60% from the 20% at two weeks, but with the CDK inhibitor added in, over 90% of the patients were now in cell cycle arrest. But did that translate into any better clinical outcomes in a neoadjuvant setting? Well, the answer is no. The clinical response rates were very similar, and the pathological crr rates remained very low at around 3 or 4%, similar to the other trial but you're still affecting the biology of the disease. You're affecting proliferation, you're switching it off in a much greater number of tumors, even if you're not completely causing the tumors to shrink and disappear. In this respect, this treatment option is very, very different to chemotherapy, which we've been used to looking at in other subtypes. So what about the adjuvant studies? Well, two large adjuvant trials reported out a year ago at ESMO, looking at these two particular drugs, palbocyclib in the PALLAS trial and a bemacyclic in the MONARCH trial. And these were looking at patients who had certain risk characteristics. And then once they completed their primary surgery, chemotherapy, radiation treatment, and they were onto their adjuvant endocrine therapy, they were randomized to two years of the addition of a CDK inhibitor to their endocrine therapy or endocrine treatment alone. Both studies were open label trials and both used the drug for a period of two years to cover that high risk period that Joyce talked about in the introduction. Now, the initial trial palbocyclib reported first uh, in a press release and then the data at ESMO. It looked in patients with stage two and three disease. You can see that there were a group of patients had node negative disease, around about 80% had prior chemotherapy either in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting. And just under 60% had high risk features determined by four or more nodes or if one to three nodes an additional factor of high grade or large tumor size. Unfortunately this trial was completely negative and at a median follow-up of 23.7 months there was absolutely no difference in three-year invasive disease-free survival on the left or dis- or relapse or distant relapse-free survival looking at sites of metastatic disease on the right. So the trial was stopped and it was a negative study. Now there are reasons why this might be a case which we'll come back to shortly. Now the other trial was the Monarch e trial and these presented data last year at uh, ESMO published in JCO and then Joyce presented these data in an updated form at the ESMO plenary just uh, a few weeks ago. And this now provides much more robust data on the impact of abemaciclib in the adjuvant setting. Now, it's worth looking at uh, a couple of points first. The initial analysis was at a median follow-up of 15 months, which was by many thought to be relatively early, but it was a positive trial at that point. It was triggered by an interim analysis, which met the um, statistical significance of reducing the risk of invasive disease-free recurrence by around about 25%. Um, but it wasn't known at that stage really what the role of key 67 was, and that's new sets of data that were presented at the ESMO plenary recently. So let's look at the trial design in a little bit more detail because there were two cohorts, but all patients were node positive. And the majority of patients were in cohort one where they had four or more nodes or if one to three nodes, they had either grade three disease or a large tumor size. And each of these clinical pathological factors is associated with a high risk of recurrence in the first few years. There was a second cohort that looked at the addition of key 67 in those who had otherwise lower risk features. So one to three nodes, it wasn't a high large tumor. It wasn't grade three. So the, the two centimeter grade two tumor with one node involved but it had a high proliferation. This cohort came on later and is around about 10% of the population overall. But key 67 was measured in all of the tumors and we'll look at those data shortly. So the trial had primary endpoint of invasive disease-free survival with key important endpoints in the secondary setting at the invasive disease-free survival in the high key 67 cohort, as well as distant relapse-free survival and overall survival. It's also worth pointing out that all patients were staged at diagnosis and had to have negative CT and bone scans, because they're higher risk patients, but we wanted to make sure that they did not have early signs of metastatic disease. They're at risk of that because of the high risk features, but they were all stage negative. And patients were then uh, stratified based on their prior chemotherapy, whether it was neoadjuvant or none, and their menopausal status at diagnosis and the region that they were treated in. If you look here at the distribution, you can see the average age was 51. So we were treating a lot of younger patients. You can see here that 43% were premenopausal at diagnosis. And in terms of chemotherapy, 95% had received chemotherapy. So a higher percentage than in the Pallas trial. And 37% were in the neoadjuvant setting. So these were younger patients with node positive, larger tumors, many of whom had neoadjuvant chemotherapy. In terms of key 67 it was measured in a central laboratory in all of the cases, and then we obtained samples in over 80% of those in the trial. And over half of those had high key 67 defined by a cutoff of 20%. And that's an internationally recognized cutoff in the St. Gallen guidelines when we designed the trial that identified those with higher risk proliferating disease. Now, the endpoint analysis of the study was measured at uh, at the interim analysis, which triggered the first disclosure last year. A primary outcome analysis when the primary endpoint was met at San Antonio last year. And then this additional follow up that was triggered by an analysis in April of this year at the regulator's request, which allowed us to now look at the data with 27 months of follow up and with 90% of the patients through and off the two-year treatment period, which at the initial disclosure, there was only 12% of patients who completed that initial two years. So we now have most of the patients through the adjuvant abemaciclib phase and significantly more follow-up. So if we look at the updated efficacy analysis, the kaplan meyer curves here show a very significant separation of the curves with a hazard ratio of 0.696, representing a 30% reduction in risk of developing an invasive disease-free event. We now have robust data to say at the three-year point, the difference in uh, IDFS has improved from 83.74% on endocrine therapy alone to 88% with the addition of a CDK inhibitor. That represents an improvement of 5.4%. It's worth pointing out here that the control arm is doing Relatively poorly here, as we had predicted when we designed the trial, namely that at three years, um, uh, nearly you know 17% had already developed a recurrence of their disease, set to be around you know heading for the 80% uh, IDFS at the five-year point, which we designed the statistics around. Now, if you look at all the individual subgroups, there was no particular subgroup that seemed to be getting more or less benefit. So benefit was seen across all predisposed subgroups and there was no statistical interaction. I always point out here that those younger patients, the premenopausal patients, as well as those who are on neoadjuvant therapy, the hazard ratios were around about 0.58 and 0.63. So these really younger high-risk patients seem to be getting an enormous degree of benefit From the addition of the therapy at preventing that early evidence of recurrence. Now, this graph now shows the distant relapse free survival, which is essentially metastatic sites of disease. It takes out the local recurrences or death from any cause. And you can see here that the absolute improvement in distant relapse free survival was 4.2% at three years, again, representing a very significant. Reduction in risk of developing a metastatic event with the curves separating early and appearing to continue to separate even when the patients have finished their two years of therapy. Now, the treatment effects over time were presented at the ESMO plenary in an exploratory analysis looking at the piecewise hazard ratio in each of the first three years. And what you can see in both for invasive disease free survival and distant relapse free survival is that the hazard ratios appear to be getting stronger year on year. So it's gonna be really important to continue to follow the trial to see if the curves continue to stay apart, but the early data at the three-year point are very encouraging that this benefit is both robust and maintained. Now let's look at the KEY67 high-risk group, which was measured, as I said, in over 80% of the patients and over half of them had high KEY67. And if you look in the intent to treat population for those with a high KEY67, here, the benefit is see appears to be even greater. You can see a 6% six absolute difference at the three-year point, improving from 80.8 to 86.8 with a hazard ratio of 0.63. And if you just look in cohort one, who had high clinical risk features with K67 led on top as an additional risk factor, here you can see an impressive 7% gain from 79% with endocrine therapy alone to 86.1% with the addition of the CDK inhibitor abemaciclib, So a very significant gain in these higher risk patients who in this particular graph with endocrine therapy alone, nearly 20% have already relapsed within the first three years. And the addition of the CDK inhibitor has a big impact in that group. And this is the population that the FDA have given the approval in. Now, if you look at this particular combined graph, you can see that ki 67 is an important prognostic factor but not necessarily a predictive factor for abemocyclic gain if you just look at the blue curves alone with endocrine therapy you can see here the impact of key 67 and that with a high key 67 the three-year elapsed three-year survival rate was 79 percent and it improved to um, as you can see oh nearly 90 percent in the low key 67. But if you look at the impact of cyclip, it was seen in both the high key 67, that's the solid group, as well as the low key 67, which is the dotted group. So there is benefit not only in terms of the addition of the CDK inhibitor to both groups, and therefore key 67 is really only acting as a prognostic factor for identifying those high risk group, uh, but it's not necessarily telling you who will or won't predict a benefit from the drug. Now, safety is always an important point when you're adding a new therapy in the adjuvant setting. And we know that the CDK inhibitors do add some additional toxicity. And in terms of abemaciclib, the most common toxicity is diarrhea, which is low grade in the vast majority of patients. Very few patients had to come off therapy due to the incidence of diarrhea, but dose reductions and dose holds were common as per the protocol. So 42% had a dose reduction, for 59% had a dose hold, and the adverse events normally settle within the first two to three months. Fatigue and neutropenia were the other most common side effects, but the incidence of neutropenia is far less than with the other CDK inhibitors, which produce reversible neutropenia and require a three-week-on, one-week-off schedule. There are some other adverse events of special interest that we need to be aware of. There is a low incidence Of veno thrombotic events, more common probably if tamoxifen is the partner of choice. And there was a low incidence of interstitial lung disease that, again, we're aware of in advanced disease, but is important to make patients aware of if they have any change in respiratory symptoms and need intervention. So, to conclude, the Monarch E trial is the first study to show that the addition of a CDK inhibitor improves invasive disease free survival and distant relapse free survival and it improves it beyond the two year treatment period. The safety data are fairly mature now so we have a good indication of how to handle the drug and to know how the side effects are and how to manage them. And the data on K67 are important because it's a clear prognostic factor in identifying patients who are going to do worse on endocrine therapy, but not necessarily a predictive factor for abemaciclib because it can be seen in both the high and the low risk groups that the drug can provide benefit. Now, the full data are published now in the Annals of Oncology at the same time that Joyce presented them at the ESMO plenary. And two days before, the FDA gave approval for bemocyclop in high-risk early positive breast cancer, but included the addition of K67 as a marker of that increased risk on top of the clinical and pathological features that were eligible for the trial.
0: On November 15th, the American Society of Clinical Oncology published a rapid recommendation update to their guidelines for optimal selection of adjuvant chemotherapy and targeted therapy for early breast cancer. The update focuses on the use of adjuvant abemacyclib with endocrine therapy as treatment of patients with high-risk disease and expands on the recent FDA-approved indication by recommending that all patients who meet the eligibility criteria of Monarch e should receive adjuvant therapy with CDK4 and 6-inhibitor therapy plus endocrine therapy. Specifically, the guideline update states the following recommendations from the ASCO panel. Based on a secondary predefined analysis conducted by the FDA, two years of abemacyclib administered at a dose of 150 mg twice daily plus endocrine therapy may be offered to patients with hormone receptor-positive HER2-node-positive negative early breast cancer with a high risk of recurrence and a KI-67 score of greater than or equal to 20% as determined by an FDA-approved test. Furthermore, the panel also recommends, based on analyses reported by Harbeck and colleagues in the Annals of Oncology publication, that abemaciclib for two years plus endocrine therapy for five years or more may be offered to the broader intent-to-treat population of patients with resected hormone receptor-positive HER2-node-positive negative early breast cancer at high risk of recurrence, defined as having more than four positive axillary lymph nodes or as having 1 to 3 positive axillary lymph nodes and one or more of the following features, histologic grade 3 disease, tumor size greater than 5 centimeters, or KI67 index greater than 20%. Qualifying statements accompanying the update noted that although exploratory analyses suggested similar hazard ratios in favor of abemaciclib, regardless of KI67 status, there were relatively few KI-67 low tumors in Monarch E. In addition, when discussing treatment options with patients, the potential benefits should be weighed against the potential harms.
2: So two or three other slides to finish up now, really about putting these data into context and where we are going with other research in this area. Joyce mentioned the Penelope B trial, which was a study of patients who had neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then selecting patients who were still at risk because they had residual disease, which is common in luminal breast cancer. They were randomized to either palbocyclib or placebo for only a year of treatment. Overall, the trial was negative, but there was that interesting early separation of the curves that then subsequently came together. Now, in the discussion of the ESMO plenary talk, Abadia gave a very thoughtful discussion and comparison of the trials. And this is one of his slides that he's kindly uh, lent to me, which really looked at the three studies head to head and compared the impact and the benefit that we've seen. The two palbocyclic trials are negative as we've just looked at. The PALACE trial had um, around about 23 months of follow-up. The Penelope B trial had much more follow-up of over 40 months. The discontinuations were high in the Pallas trial, which might have meant that patients were not exposed to the drug, but that was not seen to the same extent in the Penelope B trial, and that trial was um, negative. The Monarchy e trial has clearly identified that there is a significant reduction in risk of, ben- of recurrence with a hazard ratio of 0.69, which is markedly different to the other two trials. Now, why were these studies different? We could argue that Monarchy e got the correct population, the higher risk population. But even in the PALLAS trial, where they looked at the higher risk patients who were 60%, they saw no benefit there. We've talked about the discontinuations, and it's possible that that was a problem in the PALLAS trial, and that you need to stay on drug to be able to get the benefit. And that's about appropriate management of the adverse events and the toxicities. But ultimately, it may come down to differences in the drugs, because the key difference here is that abemaciclib is a continually dosed drug. Whereas the CDK inhibitor palbocyclib is intermittently dosed three weeks on, one week off. And in the setting of micrometastatic disease, that difference might be crucial in the ability of eliminating microscopic metastatic disease uh, rather than allowing it to remain relatively dormant and persist. This is a hypothesis which will need evaluating, but it's increasingly what people are thinking about that might explain the differences. We also know that abemocyclib appears to be better at treating endocrine resistance. When we compare the data from Paloma 3 and Monarch 2, we got much better efficacy with Abemocyclib in treating those with primary endocrine resistance. And Abemocyclib also has good single agent activity. So the drug may have a number of other features that mean that it is particularly effective and potent in the adjuvant setting. And the molecular differences also pertain to its different kinome inhibition with a much greater kinome inhibition of cdk 46 and also perhaps some indirect impact on cyclin D2 as well, which might have an impact uh, on other aspects of the cell cycle that could be escape mechanisms for palbociclib. Research is ongoing, and there is another important trial called Natalie that's looking at the role of ribocyclib at a lower dose for three years of treatment that trial is recruited and we need to see and look at the results of that trial. And ultimately, the other way that we're looking at it is using KEY67 to identify the high-risk patients upfront. We've shown you data about the static KEY67 in terms of those who are at greater risk of recurrence, but there's also the role of a dynamic KEY67 that Joyce mentioned, where you give short-term exposure of an aromatase inhibitor and look for the change in KEY67. And that was first assessed in the Poetic trial in the UK, where in four and a half thousand patients, we looked at the role of short term key 67. And what you could see is if the key 67 was either low at the outset or was high and dropped down low with the impact of the drug, the patients seemed to do quite well in green and blue here. But if they had high key 67, which did not drop with the short term exposure, then they had an increased risk of recurrence, which was up to 20% uh, 20% in the first five years. And that's a very similar percentage to those in the Monarchy e trial who had high risk clinical features. So you could use a model of primary endocrine resistance here, looking at short-term exposure to letrozole to identify those who are not necessarily going to respond to their endocrine treatment. And we're now addressing that in the POETIC-A trial in the UK, where we're using that to identify and enrich a population of endocrine resistance and then randomize them to the addition of abemaciclib or not to see if that impact of endocrine resistance in smaller tumors, those not necessarily with nodes involved but inherently endocrine resistant at the outset, whether we can derive benefit in that setting. Our colleagues in Germany are doing a very similar combination study in the ADAPT cycle where they're looking at changes in K67 and integrating it with the Oncotype Recurrence Score. So I think you'll see more research going on to use genomic features, dynamic features to identify endocrine resistance and identify those patients who perhaps have smaller node negative disease uh, these therapies could have a role to play. So thank you for that, and I hope that that has provided an understanding of the recent data and the benefit that a CDK inhibitor such as a can add in these higher risk patients.
1: Wonderful discussion. Thank you so much, Stephen. Fabulous data, and thanks for putting it into the context. Two of other trials that have gone on in the adjuvant setting with the CDK46, Inhibitors. And I did want to mention again that you'll be able to download and use additional resources, a practice aid focused on adjuvant treatment selection regarding the key 67, which is an important part of the FDA approval for adjuvant abemocycline. We might have a little discussion about that here now. And so now it's my pleasure to talk to Stephen and Judy about some cases that we want to apply these data that Stephen have just reviewed to high risk breast cancer patients. So I'd like to turn us over to Judy, who's gonna go ahead and present some cases for us, perhaps some discussion.
3: Excellent, so uh, we're gonna start off with a, hopefully a more straightforward case. Um, this is a 53 year old woman who presents to your clinic. She has a palpable four centimeter breast mass and enlarged ipsilateral axillary lymph nodes. Biopsy shows a grade three invasive ductal carcinoma and her needle aspiration of her ipsilateral axillary lymph node is positive. She's treated with preoperative chemotherapy with dose-dense ACT chemotherapy and then proceeds to surgery. Uh, pathology from surgery shows residual disease with no significant treatment effect seen. She's got four centimeters of residual grade three invasive ductal carcinoma, and four out of her 11 lymph nodes from anxiety dissection are positive. And the KI-67 on this tumor was 40%. What would you recommend as adjuvant therapy for this patient? And multiple choice options here, ovarian suppression with um, AI, ovarian suppression plus AI plus abermacyclib, ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen plus abermacyclib, ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen or tamoxifen alone. Joyce, how would you approach this patient?
1: Well, she is certainly very high risk and I'm assuming she is premenopausal because ovarian function suppression is listed as an option for several of the uh, choices that we have here. Well, she's a perfect candidate for um, adjuvant abemacyclib, she would have been eligible for the Monarch E clinical trial. She has four or more nodes, and that's one of the eligibility. She does not have T3 disease, but she does have the four or more nodes, and she does have the key 67, more than 40%, in spite of the fact that she received adju- you know, preoperative chemotherapy. A lot of times, patients will have a suppression of key you 67. Know, the chemotherapy will kill off the proliferating cells. And you'll be left with the cells that are more endocrine therapy sensitive in a lower key 67. But this patient looks like she has some primary resistance to chemotherapy, a really poor prognosis. So I would optimize her endocrine therapy with ovarian function suppression and aromatase inhibitor, and clearly would talk to her about the two years of abemaciclib. I think she's ideal. And I want to just ask, you know, Stephen, a lot of people don't get the Ki 67 routinely as part of their standard pathology report. What should we do now? Should we go back to the pathologist and ask for it? Can, can it be done locally? Does it need to be done centrally?
2: Well, I think part of the controversy about Ki 67 is exactly what you've just pointed out there about the actual methodologies and the scoring systems. And attempts have been made to um, standardize these now in terms of not only the uh, assays and kits that are used but also the, the subsequent scoring system I think everybody's been very comfortable with really what's um, you know a very low key seven five percent and what's a very high key7 as in this case here of 40 percent the challenge has always been around about the cutoff in the trial we did it centrally to to, to remove all of that but you know somebody else's 16 percent might be 23 percent in a, in another lab and that's where I think with this FDA approval of of it based on this cutoff um, using the the diagnostic kit that has been uh, recommended will be important to try and standardize the methodology for measuring it and then the subsequent scoring system. Um, I think in this particular case, however, it's Bondor that this was a highly proliferating tumor that was pretty resistant to chemotherapy. I think uh, locally um, clinicians are gonna have to have discussions with their pathologists about measuring this more frequently, uh, many centers do do it routinely in their breast cancer practice, many do not. But I think we're now gonna find now with an approval based on it, that it's gonna become much more mainstream that it's being done. But there are guidelines to try and standardize how it's measured, done and scored.
3: Let me just ask Stephen and Joyce, the KI-67 measurement um, we usually do on the baseline tumor prior to chemotherapy, in some cases it's repeated post-chemotherapy, which of those numbers would you be utilizing at this point to assist this patient in considering her treatment option?
2: No, I, um, I mean, in the trial, we did it all on the baseline. So it was the baseline level. In this particular patient, um, whether it's baseline, it's still high now. So that's an that's a indication that this is a proliferating tumor resistant to the therapy. I think if you're going to use a short-term exposure of endocrine therapy, then you need to know whether it's before or after. Um, but in this particular patient, I don't think you need to measure it in, in any other tissue. It's probably high to start with as well.
1: And I, I would just say that if, if she was 40% to start off with, and it was repeated after chemotherapy, and she was down to 10 or 15%, I would still recommend a Bemacyclib for her based on her baseline key 67 because that's what was done mm-hmm. in the Monarch E clinical trial. You know, she would so we want to go by what the trial did so we can get the results of the clinical uh, trial. And I just want to mention in the US that the FDA has that companion diagnostic that Stephen just mentioned. And uh, those kits can be ordered from Agilent. It's a DACO test that's done on their omnis um, machine. And that's uh, very, very automated with all the positive and negative controls. And then reading the slide is, is quite standardized. You know, the, the whole slide is looked at, and the percentage of cells with at least one plus you know definitive staining of the nuclei with the brown stain for key sixty-seven, those cells are, are counted. Um, the key 67 positive nuclei divided by the you know a semi-quantitative number of the entire tumor cells on the slide, and that's your Percentage And it has to include all the hotspots. So it's a pretty standard methodology of, of counting. Um, and again, as Stephen said, this is all now part of the FDA companion diagnostic or um, many reference laboratories are set up to go. For example, I know for sure Quest is currently set up to go, but there'll be many others coming online. Central reference laboratories will be able to do this according to the FDA companion diagnostic. So it's really very readily accessible right, right now. Great, well, let's go on to the next case
3: there, uh, Judy. Okay, it's a little bit more complicated one. 56 year old lady who presents with a newly diagnosed breast cancer. It's biopsied and proven to be an invasive ductal carcinoma. This tumor is a grade two tumor. ER is 81 to 90%, PR 31 to 40%, HER2 one plus, and her KI 67 is 25%. Um, Her mass measures 2.9 centimeters on her ultrasound and her MRI. Um, palpation of her axilla does not reveal any palpable adenopathy and ultrasound shows no abnormal appearing lymph nodes. She proceeds with surgical resection first and she's interested in breast conserving surgery. So um, she goes to the operating room and undergoes a lumpectomy and sentinel lymph node surgery. The Final pathology shows a 3.2 centimeter grade two invasive ductal carcinoma resected with negative margins. She has two of three sentinel lymph nodes positive. Uh, one of them has a four millimeter metastasis. One of them has a one millimeter metastasis. And since this patient meets the ACOSOG Z11 criteria, the surgeon elects not to proceed with any further Axe-ray surgery. So she's proceeding with X-ray preservation, um, given her uh, meeting the Z11 criteria. So the question really here in my mind is, how does this now impact positively or negatively impact her opportunity for consideration for vermocyclob? When you put this patient scenario into the Memorial Sloan-Kettering nomogram to predict her likelihood of additional positive nodes, she has about a 36% chance that if she went back to the operating room for an axillary dissection, that we would find additional nodes and prove that she has more than two positive axillary nodes. However, her current management would be not to proceed with an axillary lymph node dissection. So um, as a surgical oncologist, uh, Joyce and Stephen, I find this uh, very challenging. Does this mean that we should now be performing axial lymph node dissections in these patients in order to uh, prove that this patient may have four or more positive lymph nodes in order to have her have the potential to benefit from a bermacyclib? Or how would you treat this patient knowing that she has documented two positive nodes and about a 36% chance of having three or more
1: positive nodes? Stephen, what do you think? This is really challenging.
2: Yeah, I mean, this patient falls in the trial into what we call cohort two. Where essentially they have, um, uh, you know, grade two cancer, one to three nodes, it's not a large tumor. And the only risk factor, the only risk factor is the high key CC7. But unlike the previous case, it's not 40 or 50%, it's a 25%. So this is really borderline, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, they, they got into the, the cohort two. We haven't analyzed cohort two separately on its own yet because there aren't enough events in that particular cohort and it will take further follow-up uh, to look at that. So your question, Judy, is really, would you go hunting for more nodes, given that there's a 36% chance just to get them into the approval for the addition of the drug, um, which is uh, which will get them into what we call cohort one. Um, and that's a tricky one. I mean, clearly the issue is what further management of the axilla is needed. If surgery wasn't undertaken, would you be including the um, the axilla within the radiation field to, to manage and reduce that risk? Because regardless of whether you have another drug, the issue is whether how, how the axilla is going to be managed from that point of view. But I think this is, this is deliberately chosen as a tricky case um, because it is just that. And I think you could argue the case either way in terms of further surgery or not, just to see. I don't know, what do you think, Joyce?
1: You know, I, this has been a big um, uh, issue of discussion here in the states with the FDA approval of, a, of the cohort one plus the addition of the high key 67, which this patient does have. And clearly the FDA's intent here was to really single out at this early time point, the highest risk patients, because as you showed, Stephen, there was over a 7% absolute benefit in invasive disease-free survival at three years in this group that was FDA approved. That's a huge impact. And so that's what the FDA said. Let's pick the highest risk population um, and then we'll follow the patients a little longer. And then we all expect that the entire intent-to-treat population will eventually be on the label. But as you pointed out, the intent-to-treat population is strikingly positive as well. You know, And so I think this is the kind of situation we're going to have to sit down and talk to the Patient really think through the patient's overall risk. I think that going back and doing additional axillary surgery for this express purpose of trying to find more nodes to justify the use of abemaciclib, I don't think we should be doing that. I think that our axilla will be well taken care of with you know regional radiation of lymphatics, which is standard of care. And so this is something that I would talk to this patient about abemaciclib. You know, she's it's high risk. It's, you know, it's uh, high key 67. She's got two nodes, one's a macro metastasis. It's a big enough cancer, etc. cetera. And the intent to treat population is positive. So I, I think that rather than ask somebody to go back to surgery, I, I think this is one of those things where there's gonna need to be a little flexibility, honestly.
3: Well, that's very good news. Uh, I'm glad that we won't necessarily be taking a step backwards in terms of the surgical de-escalation. Um, and there could be much debate about the local regional management of this case. Obviously with Z11, they did not do uh, radiation directed to the axilla. Amarose trial obviously looked more at definitive uh, nodal radiation, but we'll leave that for another debate. So our next case is similarly a 73-year-old lady. She presents with a 1.9 centimeter tumor. It's grade three, invasive ductal, ER 81 to 90%, PR 81 to 90%, HER2 one plus. KI 67 in this case is 32%. She's healthy, she's active. She really has nothing in terms of comorbidities. Her axillary ultrasound is negative for axillary adenopathy, and she elects breast conservation. She proceeds uh, to surgery and undergoes a wide local excision, um, and pathology shows a 2.4-centimeter grade 3 invasive ductal carcinoma resected with negative margins. Now, importantly, following the Society of Surgical Oncology choosing wisely guidelines, she did not undergo any um, surgical staging of her axilla. So her clinical staging was negative by physical exam and ultrasound, but she has not undergone surgical staging of her axilla. So she's got a grade three tumor. Um, Thoughts on the management of this case um, in terms of the absence of surgical staging. um, Her likelihood of nodal positivity with a grade three tumor is uh, probably somewhere around about 30 percent with a 2.4 tumor on final pathology. Um, and is this really driving us to an area where we need to be having more multidisciplinary discussion in the preoperative setting?
1: Well, this is really um, very interesting because clearly, node-negative patients were not included in the MONARCH E, even in the intent-to-treat population, and um, you know there is a you know difference between node-negative and certainly node-positive in terms of outcome, however, one could argue that is there a huge difference between node negative and even just one node positive, for example, but one to three nodes positive since she has a grade three cancer, and she does have a key 67 of 32%. If we even knew she had one lymph node positive, she would be eligible for the Monarch E. And I would talk to her about abemaciclib. And I really um, am so glad that she did have the axillary Ultrasound looking for a lymph node because even if she had a um, you know a fine aspiration uh, of a lymph node and, and it was positive you know that would be you know adequate reason of course you probably would go ahead and have that removed of course clipped and removed but um, you know I I'm finding myself here thinking that I would like to know that she had a lymph node positive because if she did have a sentinel lymph node biopsy and she was node negative I would not recommend the adjuvant abemocycline to her. She's not quite high enough risk in my mind at this time in the absence of knowing she's lymph node positive to offer her a abemocycline. So I'd probably lean against it. But I think the surgical question here, the last is discussion needed to avoid the axillary surgery. I'd probably say yes at this point. Stephen, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think this is the case where uh, you know at face value here, this patient wouldn't be considered for um, Abemacycler because they are radiologically um, and clinically node negative. You say yes, they may have a 30% chance, but um, you know, if, if auxiliary surgery isn't going ahead, then we we wouldn't be able to sort of you know recommend the drug based on the trial criteria. Having said that, and this is the group of patients I alluded to in the further research we're doing now. I don't think um, the role of CDK inhibitors here is limited to those with large tumors and large nodal burden. It's inherent in the tumors that are biologically more endocrine resistant. And the clues here are not only in the grade, but also in that T67 of 30 percent. Now, the PR is 90 percent. If the PR had been a lot lower in the ER, I'd be really thinking that this is, you know, a, a luminal B tumor that's really... Uh, got an increased risk of recurrence if we just rely on endocrine therapy alone. We're presumably not giving going down the route of chemotherapy here, although, again, there could be debate in a, in a tumour board here about the biology of this cancer as to whether that was actually um, going to then be sent off for uh, a recurrence score. And as we know from uh, Taylor X in the, in the node negative or, or Rxponder in the one to three node positives in the postmenopausal, it's really only those with a high recurrent score, where, the, where they would be targeted for more adjuvant drugs with chemo. And chemo may not actually be the answer. It may be actually better drugs to modulate endocrine resistance, which is what abemocyclib is all about. So I think more research to understand these anatomically lower risk patients. Coming back to her and the management of the axilla, uh, you know, it, it's a real challenge. And I think um, I wouldn't necessarily be pushing it anymore because I think our standard of care here has been pretty good. But I think this is the next unmet need where the clues are in the tumor biology that they're at increased risk, but the clues aren't necessarily in the anatomical pathological features that would indicate all the time that they need um, you know, this particular treatment based on node status. So I'm not sure I would take her back for more surgery, but I certainly talked to her about it. Uh, I don't know what you'd did, Judy, or what you would have recommended here?
3: Well, what I'm thinking really is um, I've been a big um, adopter of the Society of Surgical Oncologists choosing wisely guidelines and trying to de-escalate ray staging for those women over 70 with hormone receptor positive disease. But I think with uh, the Monarchy study and with the FDA approval, my thought is, you know, for those people that are at the lower end, you know, that 70 to 75 or even 70 to 80, Um, If they have a grade three tumor, it's probably going to be worthwhile. A quick call to my medical oncologist. Maybe it doesn't need to be a formal consult, but an e-tumor board discussion or just a a whole side discussion with my medical oncology colleagues to say, is this a case where we think sentinel lymph node surgery at the time of her lumpectomy should be performed? Um, I think for the women over 80 and the grade one and the grade two, it's probably a little bit less controversial. But I think for the yep. grade two, grade three, younger portion of the over 70, um, I might be calling my medical oncology colleagues a little bit more frequently over the upcoming year.
2: Because the answer may not necessarily be chemotherapy here, which is, you know, we, we've seen even in the patients who, who've been giving chemotherapy, they, if they've got the inherent endocrine resistant features, that's not going to solve their problem.
3: Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, just to calling them to say, would a sentinel node
1: biopsy be advantageous and
3: avoiding uh, following the guidelines?
1: Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, totally agree with everything. Yeah, excellent, really good. These are great cases.
3: Okay, and then I think um, last case takes a slightly different um, look at the situation. So we have a 51-year-old female. She has a 4.9 centimeter, so just shy of our T3 cutoff, left breast cancer. It is invasive ductal, it's grade two. ER is 71 to 80 percent. Here, Stephen, you get your lower PR of 1 to 10 percent. Her 2, 1 plus, and her KI 67 is 62 percent. She has no palpable axillary lymph nodes, but axillary ultrasound does identify three abnormal appearing lymph nodes with cortical thickening. She undergoes, a, undergoes an axary ultrasound-guided percutaneous biopsy that's positive for metastatic adenocarcinoma and has a clip placed in her lymph node. She does proceed with treatment of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. She receives four cycles of AC and 12 cycles of T. She has a partial clinical and a partial imaging response. Her mass decreases from 4.9 down to about 2.6 centimeters on ultrasound. Her axillary lymph nodes normalize and the surgical plan in this patient is for a lumpectomy along with seed localized sentinel lymph node surgery or what's been coined as a targeted axillary dissection. And you discuss with her preoperatively um, that the standard of care would be in the setting of a positive sentinel node that she would proceed on to axillary dissection, but she's extremely worried about lymphedema and actually declines a completion axillary lymph node dissection in the event her lymph node is positive. So her pathology from her surgery post-chemotherapy shows a 2.8 centimeter invasive ductal grade three with one of three lymph nodes positive, which was the clipped node. So clinically, she had three abnormal nodes to start with, Post chemo, she has one positive node on pathology with a grade three tumor with a partial response. So is this patient a candidate for consideration for bemocyclib, or does she require an axillary dissection really uh, to prove that she has these four or more positive nodes?
1: Oh, I think she is um, an excellent candidate for bemocyclib. really just on the risk features that she already has without additional axillary surgery. I think we're gonna have to be a little bit more flexible. This patient will receive radiation therapy. She'll be at high risk for lymphedema, and she, you know, something to be avoided if at all possible. So she's very high risk, almost a T three, very very high key sixty seven, three positive nodes that were probably macro metastases to start off with. So I'd be very comfortable and be very enthusiastic about offering her a abemaciclib
2: yeah i mean i think she would she would get into the trial based on the fact that it was grade three uh, ultimately because remember your core at presentation may not have the full picture of what the cancer was like but the clue because the discrepancy there is saying grade two but a high key seven of 62 percent how many times is when you've actually done the full pathology analysis is it really a grade three cancer and um so with no one to three nodes and one of the other features, which was either um, high uh, grade tumor size, which it pretty much almost was, and uh, high Ki 7 this would be, uh, and I you know, would have fit the criteria for the trial. And therefore, uh, is it increased risk of recurrence? We know that neoadjuvant chemotherapy in luminal breast cancers does, does may downstage, but doesn't actually produce high path CRs at all. And those patients are still got a 20 to 30% risk of recurrence in the first five years. So uh, I would have thought she would be an absolutely excellent candidate for uh, a bemocyclib.
3: So the grade three on the final pathology put her into meeting the trial criteria. The trial criteria. Um, but if she would have been grade two on the final pathology, it sounds like both of you are significantly enough concerned about this patient from a standpoint of tumor biology. You would want to try to offer a pembrolizumab, even if she doesn't completely meet the uh, criteria for monarchy. Or, you know, if, if that final path came back grade two rather than grade three, would we still be able to treat her?
1: And the original path, the original grade was grade three. Was that right, Judy? Two, grade two, originally. grade two. So grade two, both places. Um, hmm but the key 67 of 62%, I think I'd probably, I'd repeat it. It was very high again. I certainly would treat her with the, um, uh, with the abemacycline if it came back, even in spite of preoperative therapy, she still has very high key 67. I would, you know, there, there is a little bit, there's um, certainly um, inter-observer variability on grade. There's the high end of grade two, which basically is, could be the low end of grade three, et cetera. So that is a little bit subjective. So. I, I would, I would, I look at them. The fact, this is not a high ER. This is not a high PR. She, and with this high Ki 67 I think she is p- going to likely be primary endocrine therapy resistant. So I am very worried about this patient. Truthfully, I just want to ask this next question. What if she declined neoadjuvant chemotherapy, but she's got a T3 cancer and she does not want chemotherapy, but she does need some cytoreduction clinically and one Stephen, is there a role for neoadjuvant endocrine and abemacycline?
2: Um, short answer is at the moment, no, I don't think so. I mean, because what we've seen with the, the neomonic and the palate trial as well, have a greater anti-proliferative effect, but we won't produce significantly higher radiological response rates or past CR rates. So um, you'd have to treat for a long time. I mean, if the patient with a T3 and you were going to treat with, you know, endocrine-based or endocrine plus, which is with a CDK inhibitor, you you know, in the trials, it was 14 weeks. It's probably not long enough to actually get proper downstaging if she was keen to avoid, um, you know, subsequently a mastectomy for that reason. But it's not an indication that I would use at the moment. The only indication is really if it's locally advanced disease. And it's technically inoperable and the then the drugs are, are licensed within the setting of locally advanced or metastatic disease but again you treat for a much much longer period of time um, i think it also just highlights that these criteria are never black and white and that's why i think judy you've chosen these specific examples because they are on the cusp and these things in medicine are are, are a continuum and as joy says i think you get a flavor for what's the cancer that you're dealing with here and the criteria had to be set within the trial for a certain you know, limit. And it's a question of how, how that's going to be managed. But we're going to have all of these cases on a regular basis and lots of discussion. But inherently, it's about what you feel the biology of this cancer is and what this inherent patient's risk of recurrence is. And, and as I said before, chemotherapy here is not the answer. And good surgical and local regional management is very important. Optimal adjuvant endocrine therapy is really what we're talking about here. And I would certainly be having a discussion here because all the features are of high risk.
1: Yeah, totally, totally um, agree. I just want to mention, I totally agree with um, Stephen that the patient's operable, even if she's a T3 cancer, it's best for her to go to surgery if she declines the preoperative chemotherapy that we might otherwise give her for high risk biology. There will be patients, as Stephen said, that are inoperable and really do need cytoreduction before they can go to surgery if they decline or otherwise not a good candidate for chemotherapy. I think what will end up happening, particularly in those who have features that suggest primary endocrine therapy resistance, is that we will give some preoperative abemocyclib and uh, endocrine therapy until we get excellent cytoreduction, stop briefly to allow the patient to go to surgery and then finish out her two years of adjuvant abemaciclib and endocrine therapy, you know, along with radiation therapy. And so I think that um, in the Monarch E, radiation and abemaciclib were not given together. So I think the patient would need an interruption in the abemaciclib to get the radiation therapy. But I think we will be using some preoperatively in select patients um, where we need cytoreduction, but we don't have otherwise good strategies for it. Um, I just wanted to mention with regard to the audience Q&A that's Already come in. Fortunately, I think we we really covered you know essentially all of these questions. And just there was a question here, Stephen: Is there a correlation between side effects of abemaciclib and efficacy of abemaciclib?
2: Not that we're aware of. I think the key thing is, um, and the key practice to, to tell everybody is about you find the dose that's right for the patient. What there clearly is is you, you know the efficacy will. Um, Uh, be just as good depending on what dose you find out. The side effects really determine the dose that you need to treat the patient with, but the dose, uh, regardless which dose you're on, the efficacy appears to be the same. So you use the toxicity to find the right dose, and then um, it's not a dose response in relation to the dose that you're on in terms of efficacy.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. And thank you, Judy and Stephen. This has really been informative. I hadn't thought about all these clinical scenarios because the FDA approval is so new. We've just had this so recently, but it's really helpful to think about how to apply these very important new data to our practice. So thanks so much. It's been a pleasure working with you. And I want to just, for our participants, please remember to complete and submit your post-test and evaluation for credit. And please visit at peerview.com and download the slides and the practice aids. The additional information about Key 67 is there. And please join the conversation on Twitter. And I thank you so much for your participation.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and the American Society of Breast Surgeons. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash hym860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.